Hi everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King. I'm a university fiction instructor, and this is my one-woman Stephen King podcast, where I prioritize the King short stories, novellas, and novels that don't get as much attention as they should. When I'm not analyzing a Stephen King title, I'm doing my best to supplement my reader knowledge and broaden my King friend circle with constant reader interviews that bring a lot of insight and assistance to my reader's journey, as well as amplify my personal love affair with King's writing. Ladies and gentlemen, with the fortune I've had this year podcast-wise, I think I'm going to surround myself with some lottery tickets because my jaw is on the floor with this one. My guest today has a PhD from the University of Sterling in contemporary gothic fiction and hosts the immensely entertaining and educational podcast called Talking Scared, where each week, fiction authors celebrate the horror genre and discuss new creative output. When he's not podcasting and hanging out with Ted, the insanely adorable dog, he's hard at work as a freelance writer with several publications in Esquire and The Guardian on book reviews, the horror genre, and Stephen King's fiction. Friends, Neil McRobert is on an entirely new level of Stephen King expert. Neil has read every single Stephen King title and lives in a midworld plane where deep and dark academia views with fanboy joy to reign supreme and crown him King of the North and King of Stephen King Theory. In this absolutely incandescent interview, we learn about a few of Neil's hot takes on King's story's many treasure, but perhaps now require an additional once-over. We observe his favorite Stephen King duo slash team, his favorite four-legged King creatures, and riddle of all riddles, what it's like to actually speak to Mr. Stephen King, the living, breathing person. I am absolutely blown away by our conversation, and emotionally, I'm a hollowed-out husk, as Neil is the first constant reader interview whose answers have moved me to tears. My guys, it is such an honor to present you all with this hour-plus of conversation you have no idea. But before we get going, Just a warning, there are minor spoilers for Under the Dome and Revival, so please make sure you're aware before you progress. They're definitely opaque explorations, but still, just a heads up. All right, lovies, let's not wait another second. For today's Constant Reader interview, we have Neil McRobert from Talking Scared. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce this absolutely stellar, incredible guest who has had an incredible year. This is Dr. Neil McRobert. Hello, Mr. McRobert. How are you? Hello, I'm I'm very well. Kim, how are you? I'm thrilled. I'm really overly excited. <laughs> so I'm gonna try and tamp down my emotions and calm myself. Can you tell everybody out there? I'm pretty sure everybody listening is well aware of what Talking Scared is all about, but just in case, can you let people know about what you're up to on your podcast? Yeah, I can. And and your excitement is very flattering. <laughs> also, I, I find it kind of absurd. But <laughs> yeah, so uh, right, Talking Scared, it's a podcast in which every week I, I sort of sit down virtually with a 
I would say prominent horror author. Sometimes they're quite big names and sometimes they are what I'd like to say emerging names. Um, everyone from sort of some very small presses up to the big five. If, if Yeah, big horror writers. We sit down, we talk often about their most recent book, but we also get into their politics, their lives, their histories and, and the things that really scare them. It's a kind of, the phrase I use is, informed but informal conversation with the people who write your favorite scary stories that's my elevator pitch oh beautiful i love it and right when i started listening i was like okay this guy's a constant reader this guy's king knowledge is off the charts i need to chat with him so i'm so thrilled to have you in my hot seat today as we talk about being a constant reader the king books the titles that shaped us so I'm going to get us started with my very first question, which is, how old were you when you read your very first King title and what was it? So I, write, I have this habit of like really overcomplicating very simple questions. So the simple answer to that is I read, I think I read it when I was somewhere around 12, I think. And I've been saying that for years. Oh, I read, I read it when I was around 12. And then today, when I was thinking about the question i was like i don't think that's true <laughs> i don't think it was my first king book i think night shift was my first king book because i remember being it being bought for me for my birthday and that birthday was my 11th birthday so i i think i read night shift and then i read it and then i read the green mile and then I read Bag of Bones which had just come out when I finished the green mile and I hated it at the time because I love it now, but it it wasn't ghosts and ghouls and scary clowns. It was about mature things. I was like, well, I don't want this. I want the scary clown of the sewers. But yeah, I think it was Night Shift, the first one, actually. And did you know King was a, a scary book author? Is that what drew you to him as a youngster? Or was it just everybody was reading him and you weren't really sure? No, no one was reading him that I knew. I was just a really, really macabre kid. Um <laughs> The reason I knew Stephen King was because I've told this story before to various people, but my dad, who's a major influence in my sort of creative life, he will come up more than more than a few times in this conversation, no doubt. But I remember being on holiday and for some reason he was telling me the plot line to carry the movie. And I was obsessed by spooky things. And he told he was telling me the plot of this story. And I, I remember being fascinated. And then we had a copy of Carrie in my house that for some reason was at the foot of my bed. I didn't read it. And it was a picture of Sissy Spacek looking down, covered in blood through these haunted eyes. I was like 10, it was at the foot of my bed. How that happened, I don't know. My parents were neglectful. Um, and it used to it used to talk, like torment me, this picture of Carrie looking at me. So I was aware of King as a scary kind of writer because of that. And I don't actually know how I came to read Night. I don't know who bought me that book. I don't know what the link was, but I knew he was a scary writer. And I knew about Children of the Corn. That was part of it. I'd heard the plot of Children of the Corn. And I was so excited to read that story. And it's still one of my favorite stories of his. But yeah, that, it's all a bit hazy. Very cool. I love it. I like that it's a trail of breadcrumbs into the past. Mm. But dang, yeah, that Carrie image is, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot for sure. Are you a constant reader who has read everything? Have you made your way through all of them? Or are there a couple you haven't quite nailed down yet? I've read everything. Every single 
It, yeah. Well, I've read everything more than once. So I, I obviously I started when I was a kid, and I just I, I read every book that came out. And it's a weird one when you when you when you find King in like the mid nineties. That's a weird period to be reading King because his books get pretty wiggy in the mid nineties. So what I was doing is I was reading every book that came out and thinking this is all over the map, and then I was going back and trying to fill in the gaps. I remember like I was just I used to haunt like secondhand bookstops and like market stalls, and I find a paperback King, which many of which I've still got my first copy of The Shining that's like fallen apart, and I would go back and read that, and I I didn't know enough to realize that the 80s stuff were like the classics and the new stuff were quite different. And uh, so it was a weird journey through. So basically what happened is then when I, a few years ago, I I decided it was like a real project. I said to my wife, I'm going to do this thing. And I was almost been asking permission to do it. And I sat down and I, over the course of about 14 months, I read every single King book in consecutive publication order. And I'd read them all before, with the exception of a very select few. I hadn't read Rose Madder at that point. Um, and I hadn't read like the Gwendy books, but I'd read the rest. And I read them all in order. And it's, I tell you, for real constant readers, it's such a cool thing to do because all of the links between his works suddenly start to make a lot more sense when you read them chronologically. Uh, and there's also cool things you spot, like the fact that in the first five or six books, he uses the word heliograph as a verb. <laughs> in in every book and it's like a word he clearly loves you know oh the sun heliographed off the car as Cujo tried to eat tad and stuff like that and you spot little linkages like that and you literally see a man's writing career develop it's really worthwhile doing that's amazing all the constant readers who have read everything I'm just in awe I bow down <laughs> and to have done it in 14 months I mean that's incredible I can read King faster than the bill so I'm like the words kind of fly what what have you not read what have you not read that you think you should have read? Oh, dear. Probably the 70s classics. I haven't read Cujo yet. I am just now reading Carrie for the very first time. For the okay. very first time. Yeah, I haven't touched a lot of his more mainstream titles, aside from the big ones, of course. It. I'm halfway done with The Stand. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> I like Once we got to Mother Abigail's in Nebraska, I closed the book and I don't know what happened. I haven't read Cujo, and I really think that I need to. I actually haven't read Night Shift either, so I, I'm committing okay. a lot of crimes in my King journey just because I started falling in love with these shadow titles that nobody was talking about, and that's kind of where I hung out. Okay. Do you know how Cujo ends? I think so. I think so. I think it's like a tragic child death, if I'm correct. So just, just sort of prepare yourself for it, because... Yeah, you could tell the man was on a lot of substances when he wrote it because he leaves nothing on the table. He's in a, he's in a cruel, mean-spirited kind of mood. Prepare yourself. I, but I can't read that book because I'm an animal obsessive anymore. I, I don't think I could reread Cujo. Like, my... You know about Ted, my dog. Like, he's like show mascot. This <laughs> the reason I kind of get up in the morning these days. And since I got him, I struggle so much with... Even animal distress, like, really bothers me. Uh, and the thought of reading Cujo again, because th this can we, do we talk about in, is it spoilery this podcast? Can we do spoilers? You absolutely can go for it. OK, well, I won't spoil Cujo for you. But the fact that like what happens to him and, and this phrase that because there's, there's bits from Cujo's perspective and there's this phrase that Cujo just wanted to be a good boy. Mm. And it's just, just the most heartbreaking thing, honestly. 
that crushes me. As I get mm. older, I notice I'm really sensitive to animal cruelty mm. in King's works, especially. And sadly, Neil, there's a lot of it. There's a lot. Yeah, oh God, yeah. As I've said before, kill as many fictional kids as you want. <laughs> I don't. I really don't care. But just leave. Please leave the dogs alone. It's cats. I'm okay with. You know, like, <laughs> like church. I'm not really that bothered. But like, oh, leave the dogs alone. Yeah. Agree. This this will come up again in this conversation, no doubt, because I've seen the questions. I absolutely approve. I host a Stephen King book club with brand new King people. Like these are people who have never read King before, and it's pretty mm. amazing. And I'm having to have these conversations with them. Like <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's it's there. So yeah, you're mm. not alone in the dread. My next question is. Stemming from this vast readership of King, do you have any King titles that you absolutely love, but you notice that it doesn't get a lot of love and vice versa? You really dislike a King title, but you realize that everybody swoons over it. And do you fall in any of those categories? So I think I, generally speaking, follow the common herd with this, generally speaking. So I think Dreamcatcher is an abomination of a book. Um, <laughs> I think Cell is deeply flawed. Well, it's got a great ending, but it's deeply flawed. But I feel kind of on safe ground there because if Stephen heard this, he hates Dreamcatcher too, right? Everyone hates Dreamcatcher. But there aren't many books that I really dislike that other people like, apart from Christine. Okay. I really don't like Christine. And when I was doing my big reread, I just found it such a chore to get. And I love the book, the film rather, John Carpenter's film. Love it. That's another one that my dad introduced me to way too young. Love the film. The book just, if it was a mean 300 page sort of, you know, B-movie pot boiler, it'd be great. But it's like a 650 page hubris trip you know and you can see the hubris you can see it's the point in king's career where i think he got too big for editorial control because there's a thing about christine that he spent a fortune of his own money buying the rights to all these do what 50s rock songs so he could put them as kind of epigrams before each section and he spent his own money on that and i'm like you are a man who was you've kind of left you have sailed away here from editorial restraint a little bit Stephen. you know and I think that shows in the expansiveness of what is quite a minor story. I just think, I just don't think it works. There's some great set pieces and Arnie Cunningham is a good character. It just feels like too, too grandiose a thing for the subject matter. But recently I've seen loads of people on social media singing its praises. It's had a resurgence from somewhere. I don't know what's caused it, but there's loads of people chatting about it. But yeah, I don't like it. And the other two that came to mind, again, I don't hate these books. I just don't like them as much as most people. Revival, people adore. And I'm like, yes, it's a good story. And again, fantastic ending. But for me, it feels like everything he's done before, small town, coming of age, all of that kind of like young love, all of that kind of stuff. It feels like that, but done at a kind of diluted level. That ending is fantastic, though. But the King cast... They love revival and go to bat for it. And I feel like that has been quite instrumental in, in driving its popularity. I just don't see it. And I feel the same about Dr. Sleep. I think Dr. Sleep is a, I don't know. I, I just don't love it that much. A few issues with Dr. Sleep. Am I giving too much detail here, by the way? Am I talking too much? Nope. Get it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> my, my thing with Dr. Sleep 
is that the true knot, these kind of nomadic Winnebago driving geriatric vampires are brilliant villains, but they just aren't given the right novel to do their thing in. So I feel like they're wasted, which is a shame. It's this other thing. It's, it's also Doctor Sleep is up there with Dreamcatcher as one of the worst, one of the worst indulgences of something that I think King does now and again, which is he takes the sort of the story and he takes the conflict of the story and he relocates it in an almost entirely psychological sort of mental landscape. So you get Abra and the True Knot. Uh, Rose the Hat, having all these fights in this kind of conceptual mind palace where they're going through filing cabinets of the mind. And there's just a bit where it leaves the real world behind a bit too much. And it, it just weakened the story for me. And I think, I don't believe that the Danny Torrance of Doctor Sleep is the same Danny Torrance of The Shining. I just don't, I just don't believe that. It doesn't, they, they don't feel like the same character. I'm saying like I hate it more than I do because I don't mind the book at all. It's just some people really love it. And I think it's deeply flawed and kind of didn't need to exist. Wow, that's I'm fascinated. I'm blown away. And that's a hot take. I love it. I've not heard that before, but that makes a lot of sense, actually. I like what you said about the true knot being wasted. I think that's brilliant because when I think about the true knot, they were a large weakness in the book for me. However, if I framed it around them being omitted into something else, yeah, you've got something. Mm. That works, actually. Yeah, I'm going to chew on that for a while because, <laughs> yeah, I remember liking Dr. Sleep, but having issues, especially mm. with the Conchetta, the grandmother part. That was sort of challenging for me. Yeah, the flaws are aplenty. <laughs> I mean, the, with the tree up, the bit where they, again, kill the kid. The bit where they, you know, they kill that boy in the in the is it in a cornfield or something? That's one of the most horrible scenes King has ever written. I mean, I was like, Jesus, this is even even King doesn't go for the throat this much. It's like it's an abhorrent scene, and I was like, oh, this is the true knot in all of their finery. You know, this is them with their their mask thrown off, and they are terrifying because there's something about an, a kindly elderly person exploiting the fact that we the fact that we all tell kids that old people are to be respected and we imply they are safe and then you see them oh my god they're monsters and they're exploiting that supposed safety that's terrifying but they just seem so neutered for so much of the story very nice okay when flanagan's adaptation of dr sleep i'm a big fan of and me too. His scene with the baseball boy, oh my God, Neil, mm -hmm. it was so upsetting for me. Mm. I have never had this reaction to a scene. I immediately started crying. It was so awful. Awful. Yeah. I agree. I think the true knot are more layered and more nuanced than I remember. And mm -hmm. mixed in with Dr. Sleep, they are overshadowed a little bit. Flanagan's film is fantastic. I think it's the best adaptation of a King novel since The Mist. I think in the last sort of like 10 to 20 years, it's the single best adaptation. And I, I had Mike Flanagan on my podcast and we basically turned the entire thing into a conversation about King. And I think that Mike Flanagan gets him in a way that no one has since Darabont or Rob Reiner. There are three great King directors. You know, Rob Reiner made Misery, Darabont made 
Shawshank and the Green Mile and, and the Mist. And now Flanagan is, is the guy because he took Gerald's game, which should be unfilmable, and made it brilliant, you know. But the Doctor Sleep, the movie, is so much better than the book. And it's the only time I can say that about King's work. Because the thing about the movie is Flanagan actually makes, well, he, he said, you know, Rebecca Ferguson plays Rose the Hat and Rebecca Ferguson is one of the most attractive, sexiest, just wonderful women alive, right? <laughs> so that's a whole dimension. Mm-hmm. But also he gives that group a kind of pathos that I think is missing a little bit in the book. In the film, you do kind of feel a weird sympathy for them, that they are they are friends and they love each other and they're losing each other. And if they have to kill this little girl to, you know, save each other, then so be it. That's probably, I think that's the third time I've kind of talked about child death being permissible. But yeah, I, th- I think the film's fantastic. And I think the book is okay. I love your interview with Mike Flanagan, by the way. And I, I'm sure we all do. I was really drooling over that one because it is a brilliant King love fest. And I wholeheartedly mm-hmm. agree that this guy gets him in a way we haven't seen in a really long time. And yeah. I'm so thrilled that The Dark Tower is coming and The Life of Chuck is coming. Mm-hmm. I just wish, I want him to adapt everything, which I think a lot of us <laughs> yeah. want that. But my next question is kind of pulling from what we were talking about the True Knot. We've got some villains lurking around. And I wanted to know if you have a favorite or favorites. You can do a top three, a top five. I'm open. So, right. So- I always have a soft spot for Leyland Gaunt from Needful Things, but I don't think he'd make the top three or anything. I think he's just so deliciously kind of evil and funny. And I love that that book's kind of like King's Witches of Eastwick. You know, I it, it's something a bit different. I think he's a joy. But I had to really think about this question. And my top, in no particular order, Annie Wilkes from Misery is just one of the greatest characters, antagonists, of all time. Um, and the more I read that book, and it's probably the King book I've read the most times, because I wrote an entire chapter of my PhD thesis on misery. Wow. So I've read it probably upwards of 15 times, that book, in every possible way of reading it. And every time I read it, I think more and more that she's just misunderstood. Okay. And I think Paul Sheldon is a right prick. <laughs> I've come to quite love Annie. I think we could be friends, me and Annie. And I think, you know, we'll get into probably talking about King and women as we go along. But, you know, King does writes her as, you know, a six-dimensional character. There is so much going on. You know, she's a killer of children, like an angel of death type, Munchausen's by proxy person. She's a caretaker as well. And she does love Paul and she does love Misery Chastain. And none of it's a lie. And that makes her both more endearing and and more terrifying because you're dealing with authenticity. You know, I think authentic evil or not even evil. She's not evil, but authentic danger and threats and someone who really believes in what they're doing is way scarier than someone who is doing it for, you know, a more cynical reason. So that's what makes her so she so believes that she's doing the right thing. And it's it's terrifying. And. And the weird thing about that book is she represents so my, my, so right so my PhD was in metafiction so like horror writing that is writing about itself and my point was that in that book King is based I know I know he says he's writing about addiction and that Annie is coke and all of that sort of stuff who am I to argue but undeniably he is also taking stock in that book 
of his own career and the fact that he's reached a point in his career where he feels so curtailed and confined by the horror genre, just like Paul is confined by romance and the misery books. He feels, you know, King clearly felt so just confined by horror that he wanted to treat the genre of horror and the readership as a kind of gothic imprisoning thing. You know, Annie Wilkes is genre. She is the reader. She's she's this demanding, voracious market that wants more and more of what King does. And he wants to break free. But what I find interesting is as King has got older, he has become way more open to literature and to, you know, realism and to to moving away from genre. So as he's got older, he, he went towards it and, and all that kind of wanting to be a great American writer. And he's come back to horror and he's come back to being like, I am what I am. I like writing genre. Take it or leave it. I don't care. So as he's got older, I think he probably agrees with Annie more now than he, he would agree with Paul because he seems to have fallen back in love with the genre. Does that make sense? So I think he's redeemed Annie in his own career. I'm just drooling right now. Like, this is the part where I stand up and clap, Neil. My God, that's huge. Yes, it makes sense. It's brilliant. But she's not my favorite villain. My favorite villain is Jim <laughs> Rennie from Under the Dome. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I love that. Yes. Tell me more. Well, it's a split. Right. Big Jim Rennie or Mrs. Carmody for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Because I think they are essentially the same, providing the same function. They're showing that in a confined space, under stress, evil can be very, very seductive and very plausible. So for those who haven't read The Mist, Mrs. Carmody is this kind of religious zealot who kind of, you know, she they're all trapped in this superstore, supermarket type place while shit's going down. And Mrs. Carmody starts talking about blood sacrifice and how it's the end of days. And at first, what seems like a completely ludicrous stance, as pressure is applied to this kettle of a situation, more and more people cross the threshold to, to agree with her. And big Jim Rennie in Under the Dome, again, it's a it's a bigger, you know, footprint, but it, they're still trapped in a pressure cooker as this invisible dome comes into place. And he manipulates everyone's panic and anxiety and their insecurity to his own ends. And I think that they're both providing the same function on kind of like a micro and a macrocosm. And you look at, I mean, I know that, uh, Big Jim Rennie was based on not Rumsfeld. What's the other guy called? What's Cheney? Cheney, yeah, Dick Cheney. But you look at what Trump. You look at Trump's entire trajectory, and oh yep. my god, oh, it yeah. is just every. You know, it's just Big Jim Rennie. So I find it plausibly terrifying that these characters have actually been borne out by politics. Couldn't agree more. Big Jim Rennie. I that was. I read Under the Dome during COVID. Oh, wow. (laughs) Right. Poor choice in retrospect. Very poor choice. But I had such rage in my body Mm. reading that book. And he is alive, of course, the whole time. Hundreds and hundreds of pages of Jim Rennie. I just was gritting my teeth. I had a physical Mm. reaction to how much I hated that character. And that's brilliant. It's just Mm. brilliant with how real. Because like you said, it is absolutely plausible and palpable and we've seen it we yeah. see these people in real life which is horrific and yeah i could not agree with you more and i really think he's an underrated villain yeah we need to get more eyes on jim Rennie because you're entirely correct i mean i don't know whether you've read because you said you hadn't read much of the 70s stuff. have you read the dead zone 
That one I did read. I heard it was romantic and I fell in love with Johnny Smith like right away. So yeah. I did read that one. Greg Stilson starts by killing a dog and you're like, well, we don't like this guy. But he, I mean, again, exactly the same thing. You know, that predated everything that's come by like 40 years. You know, like King clearly gets the mundanity of evil. I like and that. that's why I'm not really that bothered about Flag. You know what I mean? And I obviously will get to it, which I think this is the longest I've ever talked about <laughs> Stephen King and not mentioned it in depth. But even Pennywise is this grandiose villain, you know, cosmic scales with villainy. And that's wonderful. And it's, it's, it's fascinating and it makes your imagination fly. But I think he's much better at the minutiae of villainy. You know, Margaret White from Carrie, who is just a bully, you know, Greg Stilson, these characters and, and and for me culminates in big jim rennie they're so much more frightening because king it's like he's looking around and he understands what makes an american psychopath tick very much so absolutely great 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 choices i'm just <laughs> oh, there's so much richness happening right now this is like a decadent meal neil so thank you <laughs> i'm like this is fascinating no one lets me talk about King this much, so you're very welcome. This is you're doing my wife a favor because normally I'm just yelling this stuff at her across the dinner table. So same thing with my boyfriend. Like every yeah. time, I'm like, can I? Especially when we're watching an adaptation, I have to pause and say, yeah. can I tell you how it's different? <laughs> yeah. All right, I do want to segue just to skosh from your fabulous list of King villains and kind of segue into Stephen King endings. Okay. Probably not more so now, but in the past, I remember one of my friend's moms who was a King reader said, oh, he just can't end books. And that really stuck in mm. my head for a mm. long time until I started talking with more constant readers and hashing it out. But have you ever had a Stephen King ending that was so unsatisfying that it kind of soured the journey as a whole? Or are you a constant reader that just appreciates the journey? I don't think King is a bad ending writer. I'd, I've never understood this. So in the early days, he had a predilection to just go like, right, we've got everything to a situation now. Burn it with fire. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of things that just, I mean, I think his first three books, Carrie, Salem's Lot and The Shining and The Stand to an extent, but I won't spoil that for you. That's a very big version of fire, but they all end in fire, right? And there's, a, I suppose there's a degree of, not laziness, but I think he just constructs these scale models of a town and doesn't quite know how to finish it without some big cleansing flame, you know? But they are all satisfied endings. And as he's gone on, you think about endings like, we've, we've mentioned some, Revival is just a stone-cold killer of an ending. Yes. The one for me, and I'm, I'm not answering your question because I'm saying the opposite, what I like, I think King's greatest ending of all time is 112263. Yeah. I mean, it makes me howl. Because what's great about that book is it's the ending that nobody wants, but it's the ending that you must have. It's the only, it's like he chiseled away the story and found the only possible shape of the thing that was captured in the stone. Like there was no other outcome that could work. Uh, and that thing, you know, like in another life, baby, oh my God, it, it, it ruins me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a wonderful ending. So I'm struggling for anything where it's really soured it. And I suppose the closest I can come, weirdly, <laughs> is under the dome. Yeah. 
it certainly didn't spoil the journey for me because like you said i don't think like that i enjoyed the journey it's like oh, okay that could have been better but it felt like you know little gray capped aliens really <laughs> i say what would have made it better it would have been better if it had been foreshadowed in some way or laced through i think the way it was on it felt like a sort of just a, a casual capstone on a story whereas if there'd been stuff throughout that you could work out perhaps or piece together and going like oh okay that would have been better but to be honest it doesn't feel like any ending could have really borne the weight of that story because there's so much going on i'm not quite sure what you're going to do that's going to pull it all together satisfactorily unless you just burn it with fire again and i think he well you know he don't he does burn it with fire doesn't he yeah <laughs> he does yeah i think that's the that's the ending where it's the biggest juxtaposition between how good the book is and how disappointing the ending was. But it certainly didn't ruin the book for me as a whole. And you'll notice I haven't mentioned The Dark Tower. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. But really quick, I do agree with you on the Under the Dome ending. I accept it. But I've thought mm. about it a lot, actually, because after a thousand page book, it stays with me for a couple months, usually. I thought to myself, if I were to edit it, would you be okay or would the readers have been okay with it ending tragically nobody lives and we never find out why and there's zero connection to who put the dome in place and it's just a great mystery would that have really changed the game for it would that have worked neil what do you think uh well i think it would have worked i think yes because king quite famously isn't at all interested in how the machine works or how the sausage gets made he's just kind of like right here because basically all king wants to do in that story is go right what would happen if we got a lot of people in a situation and they couldn't leave and then we just kept hitting them with a hammer like how would they react because you know he was got he would try writing it years ago set in a in a high-rise building and it was going to be called the cannibals and there's 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 a bit, a bit of ambiguity whether that was the same book or a different book there's he's given a lot of interviews that make it a bit gray but clearly he was fascinated by what happens if you get people together and another small town, but this one, they can't just leave. I mean, maybe he only needed the dome because these days in our new hyper-connected world, you would just leave. Was when he wrote Salem's Lot, no one left, you know? So maybe that was the reason he needed the dome because, yeah. But he doesn't really care about the dome. You can tell he doesn't care about the dome. He's not the slightest bit interesting where the dome comes from because he's a good enough writer that if he was interested, he'd have come up with a better reason. You know, so I think he would have been better off just telling the story he wanted to tell and be like, it's the people that matter. And the thing that's keeping them here, yeah, that's a kind of device, but do we really care? And then people like you and I would have sat on podcasts for decades afterwards debating what the dome was. Right? It could have been glorious. <laughs> yeah, yeah glorious nerdery for decades to come do you know the real nerdy thing about the the on the, when they find the box and it's got the symbol on it i heard that in your interview and thankfully i had read the tommy knockers as well mm. as it of course on the door yeah. i don't have a visual of the symbol though but the fact that he solidified that they're connected blew me away mm. that is huge yeah for those who don't know there's a symbol at the end of the under the dome they find this box with a, a strange sort of chinese style info um what's the word my mind has gone blank for that kind of apologies if that comes across as crass i've forgotten the word for that kind of symbol and 
it's also on the door to Pennywise's lair in It. And it's also found, I think, in the spaceship in the Tominocus. Though I, I didn't know that reference till King told me. But when I asked him about it, he clearly just couldn't be even bothered answering it. He was just like, yeah, it's the fucking thing I did. <laughs> like, you know, he's not bothered, is he? Just, it's like, here's, to, enjoy the story and don't bother me. I've got other ones to write, you know? So. I do love that we know that about King, that he mm. really sort of pulls the plug on the deep space cowboy from <laughs> Lee's story from the TV series. If you're going too hard into the ether there, he's just going to pull you right back. And I kind of yeah. love that. It's yeah. pretty great. Yeah. I think it was Kingcast where they talked about why the ending of Revival was a particular insect. Was there any sort of significance in that? And he's like, nope, not at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> King yeah. being somebody who's not taking it seriously. And so we need to do the same. Yeah, I mean, I think there are times when it, when we get into Midworld and the Dark Tower where things do matter. But so much of the time, it's just like, just read really, your story, guys. You know, he's got other things to be getting on with rather than dealing with your Easter egg laid and neuroses, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. We've come to the doorway of my next question. Now, before I open this door, I have only read the first four books of The Dark Tower. I finished Wizard and Glass and i am debating on whether i should stick with canon or if i should be a rebel and read wind through the keyhole so you can let me know what you think about that but this question is just completely open you could take it any direction you want what are your thoughts on the dark tower right see now <laughs> i have a now i've got a quandary okay because i want to talk at length about the dark tower but i really am not willing to deprive you of that journey right and anyone who does is not your friend yes 100 percent. so how to have this conversation i think the dark tower is the most the most flawed perfect thing i have ever experienced so the gunslinger it's not a bad book it's not a mess but it's a hard hurdle to jump right and it's I don't think The Gunslinger is a hard hurdle for people who, who aren't familiar with King. If you just got that book and read it, you'd be like, okay, this is a kind of quite idiosyncratic um, sort of sci-fi fantasy novel. That's fine. But when you know King and you know that kind of laconic, avuncular storytelling style he has, to suddenly get this thing where it's such a harsh world and there is no goodness and there is no, no respite from the... just It's a weird tone, isn't it? You know? And I think it's quite a hard hurdle. So everyone I ever speak to, I say, right, point one, the Gunslingers are like 200 pages long. Just read the damn book because it's worth it, right? It's like it's like when you're eating dinner, if you don't like your peas, eat them because you've got like something delicious on that side of the plate. <laughs> but it's not a bad book. It's just not what the Dark Tower is. And then it goes on and goes on. And I think Wizard and Glass is very close to my favourite King book. It's only pips at the post by it. When I read Wizard and Glass, I didn't understand that a book could be that cruel until I read it. You know, like... I'm still recovering. Oh, my God. Like, the whole thing with... Right, spoilers for this part, because you've read it. But, like, the entire thing is like a thousand, one hundred page, like, Western epic about Roland of Gilead, King's Gunslinger, his youth and... This broken man that we've met so far who has no space in his heart for love, you find out that he was this 
this love-gone teenager wants. I mean, it's it's kind of like <laughs> I described this the other day. The gunslinger is kind of like if Cormac McCarthy wrote Dawson's Creek. <laughs> oh my god, that's perfect. <laughs> and you know, you care about this this relationship, and it's like. You know, it's it's YA. It's in a way, it's YA fiction, right? But it's it's not YA fiction, and it broke my heart. It just spirals to this inevitable tragedy that you think cannot possibly happen. You're waiting to the final page to think, you know, there's going to be someone who stops this, and it happens, and it's just it scoured my soul when I read it the first time. And it's, a sh- it's in a weird way, it's a shame that it's got that frame narrative around it, you know, because it, it's weird to read those last 50 pages about Roland and his mother and all that. You don't really care by that point because Susan. Yes. But yeah, so I think that I think that is close to a perfect book. And then it, it goes on and it has its peaks and troughs. And I'm not sure it gets as good again until the final book. OK, I think Wolves of the Cower is good. It's really good, fun novel that's riffing on Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven, intentionally riffing on that. And then Song of Susanna is the low point of the entire series for me. In the way that the second to last Harry Potter book feels like they're just moving pieces to being into the right place for the final book. It felt a bit like that. And then the last book, I've never been angrier. I've never... I mean, I love it. I love it, but... It's like Stephen King has gone, prepare yourself when you read it. It's like Stephen King has gone, okay, I've given you, you love everything that I've given you. And now I'm going to smash it to pieces and make you watch. Oh, God. In the most cruel, remorseless way. But it contains some of the most beautiful language he's ever written. I mean, there's one thing in. We'll talk in, towards the end about one particular thing. I'm going to try not to spoil things for you, but there is one bit in that book, and it's a quote I I say it all the time, kind of whimsical life I lead that I say Stephen Quinn quotes. But he, um, there's a line. It's something like, "I will not tell you these three lived forever after, because no one does, but I will tell you they lived and there was happiness." Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah, and I just cry about the last six of the pages of the entire. I just weep. Like, yeah. I, I've waffled there. I haven't really answered your question. I, I I think the thing I said at the start answered it. I think it's the most flawed masterpiece. And by flawed, I mean it follows no rules. It goes all over the map. It doesn't have any kind of sort of concrete, coherent cosmology. He's just riffing. But it's like, you know... A Jimi Hendrix guitar solo, it's probably not technically perfect, but my God, it makes you cry. You know, like it, it yeah. yeah, I think it's, does that answer your question in any Absolutely. way? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm looking for. It's really sort of a raw reaction question. What does that question pull out of you as someone who's read the series? So no, it's perfect. Mm. It's really perfect. I am really looking forward to it. But at the same time, I planned on reading Wolves of the Cala, or I rather I planned on reading um, Wind Through the Keyhole. I was kind of mm-hmm. stuck on which path to take. But I was so crushed, body and soul from Wizarding Glass that like, I I need time that I haven't been able to touch it this year. Yeah. And yeah. I needed to but couldn't. So I think I'll join Roland and the Quartet again in early 2024, but I was wrecked. 
I needed to recover from the power of Wizarding Glass. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, a few things there. One, my advice would be read Win Through the Keyhole. Oh, great. Okay. Because there's no spoilers involved. And after you finish the final, the Dark Tower, it will feel like an addendum. Okay. So read it next. But also, have you read Salem's Lot? Yes, I have. Fine. I will say no more. Okay. Have you read Hearts and Atlantis? Yes, I have. You're fine. I'm going to say nothing else. You're fine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited. Oh, and something else. Here you go. Here's, here's a thing I want to say. This is the kind of mad spasm of enthusiasm I do. But <laughs> at some point next year, I don't know when, so I need to take a break. I'm going to be doing a Dark Tower read through <gasps> with, you know, Nat and Ali, who came on my show to do the, the King deep dive. Yes, they were brilliant. I'm going to do things like that. And when we get to some of the later books, you are welcome to come on and talk about it. Oh, my God. So, Oh, my God, yeah. I'm there. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Please do. Oh, my gosh. I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled because it, it took me a while to fall in love with Roland and the quartet because, like you said, Gunslinger's a little bumpy. Mm. But by the time I got to part five of the Gunslinger, where I realized what the Dark Tower is and then getting to know Eddie and Susanna and Jake and Noy, I'm like, okay, I, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Right now, I really am in a kind of like love-hate with Roland because I get it. But man, he just, he broke my heart. He broke my heart. And it's the power of the story. And he broke me and yet I'm still with him. I'm still walking behind him. And that's a powerful realization I've had. Oh, there are so many things you don't know. And I, I just, know. Oh, God. I just, I feel like I need to take, like, take care of you with what you're going to go through. <laughs> Honestly, just, yeah. Right. I appreciate that. I will need verbal processing mm -hmm. later. I know I'm going to need it. Because, yeah, I broke up Wizard and Glass into three parts because I was, I could not, I could not be logical. I was like mm -hmm. an overflowing emotional mess. I could not get it together. Well, I've just thought of another, another villain. Eldred Jonas. <gasps> I remember. Yep. Here's a question. If I could punch any king villain in the face. Oh, beautiful. It would be Eldred Jonas. Love it. Yeah. That might have to be a new question I ask in the series. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to segue just a skosh into individual characters. And I wanted to ask, I know you mentioned... Danny Torrance in Dr. Sleep probably wasn't your favorite, but is there any King character who you would love to have more spotlight, either in a sequel, prequel, a standout, breakout, much like we're getting with Holly Gibney, who's just a star now? Is there anybody who you would like to get their own spotlight? I don't want King to ever write a sequel again. Okay. I just want new stories. Well, and I say a lie, I want the third Talisman book. Which he did allude to writing when he came on my show. Yes, he so did. I'm, and, and then the press picked it up, so he's kind of held to it now. So, yeah. So I want the third Talisman book. I don't really want him to write anything else. I want him to tell new stories. But I am obsessed by quite a few weird kind of enigmatic, not even side characters, just like reference characters in King's world. Because he does that so well. He drops in these stories within stories or anecdotal stuff and there's so much i want to know and the, and the three that come to mind i was trying to think so david quick i think it's david quick who in the dark tower 
he's this World War II pilot who at some point crossed over into Midworld and his his plane crashed and he had a you know he he was then the grandfather of the TikTok man and stuff like that you know so I want to know about that I want to know what what happened to David Quick you know I love that stuff right and the yellow card man from eleven twenty three like what's that dude's deal right the, you know the guy who's kind of seems to be in some way behind the scenes of reality or he has some special knowledge, but it's just not fleshed out at all. And yeah, King probably doesn't know. He's probably not, he's probably got no interest in who the yellow card man is, but I, I'd love to know more about that. And I would love, I would love to know about Stevens, the butler from the breathing method. Have you read the breathing method? I have. Yes. I liked that one a lot. The breathing method is one of the novellas in different seasons and it's, it keys into a thing that I've always been really romantic about, which is the idea of being part of like a, a storytelling gentleman's club, right? I don't like rich people, but <laughs> if I was rich, the one thing I would do is join a club where I get to sit there on Christmas Eve swilling brandy and yep. telling ghost stories, right? And in The Breathing Method, there's this storytelling society. They are butlered by a guy called Stevens. And there's this hint of otherworldliness to him, This this kind of... I don't know, a, a suggestion of immortality about him. And I want to know what other things he's seen and where he's come from. And I would love, it's never going to happen ever, but if I could commission King to write, talk about being rich, but if I could commission King, to, I'd say like, right, Stephen, write me a book of short stories where you expand on your weird little nodule characters who don't you know tell me who these people are i want to know that i love that book oh me too i am obsessed with the manhattan club i love it mm. i'm thrilled that we have two short stories we've got the man who would not shake hands and skeleton crew and then we have the breathing method and mm -hmm. you're right it's so rich it's just soaked in like what is going on what is this place and Stevens is at the heart of that. And you just made me remember how much I love the Manhattan Club. Yeah. I want more. I want more of that so much. Have you ever read Peter Straub's ghost story? That one I have not. No. So I would recommend that. Okay. I mean, King himself says it's the greatest work of 20th century horror, I think. some he, he made some very, very grand claim. And it's true. I mean, it's a masterpiece. But that is about storytelling. It's about four old men who get together and they share stories about weird things that happen to them. And then some of those stories reemerge in their present. And it's a brilliant book, but it's very slippery. It's very, very odd and jangly and all over the place. But if you like the Manhattan Club, read Ghost Story. Okay, it's shooting to the top of the list. Yeah, and it's a great winter book as well. I'm doing a deep dive on it with John Langan and some other horror writers for a kind of Christmas Eve special. <gasps> so, yeah, read it and, and, and then listen to that. And I think you'll get a lot from it because it's a great book. Oh, I'm thrilled. I will do that. I'm looking forward to it. Piggybacking on the fantastical a little bit, I wanted to ask if you were able to get stuck in a fictional King setting, you could go the macabre route and hang out in the Overlook for the winter, or you could go the sunny route and head to Joyland. Where would you choose and why? Well, I'm going to guess that in 120-something episodes, you've never had this answer. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I would like to go to Little Tall Island. 
Oh my God. No, I haven't. I haven't had that answer, but I'm freaking out. So I love islands. And years ago, I did a whole trip around America and I drove all over the place and I went to Martha's Vineyard. Oh, beautiful. And I was just like, I want to live here. I mean, I don't, I, mean, I think when I was there, George Clooney was like renting the house for like 10 grand a week or something. I was like, it's probably out of my price range. <laughs> but I just, I love islands. I love that like microcosmic community thing. I'm quite an offensive person. So I will probably be ostracized like week one. <laughs> I, I'm quite an annoying guy. Probably wouldn't be the right setting for me, but I love the idea of it. And I would basically like to spend a storm in Little Tall Island with those people, why Andre Linoge comes calling, because I've not got kids, so crack on, it's not my problem. And <laughs> um, and also, I love Dolores Claiborne, who was the other major inhabitant on, on Little Tall Island. So, yeah, it'd be that for me. There's something really romantic about an island off the East Coast. It's just this hardy, harsh, cosy sort of, almost Scandinavian feel to it. I imagine it being windswept and like, warm ruddy light coming through the inn window and you're all in there telling stories and i just did something about it like i, I watched midnight mass and i was like i want to live here you know yeah that it'd be a little tall island for me most people would expect me to say it uh, say Derry from it because it is my favorite book of all time i'm obsessed by the book but i've actually been to bangor and king took bangor maine and just changed the street names and bangor is a lovely place but the Derry version is kind of like its tarnished twin. So actually, who who wants to live in a place where every 30 years a lot of people get murdered? Like, I want to be friends with the losers, but I don't want to live in Derry, you right. know? So yeah, it's a little tall island for me. Oh, perfection. I'm going to come visit. I'm going to bring my cats and my boyfriend. and We're going to have Indeed. a cottage in the same street because I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with Storm of the Century. It's great, right? It's really great. It's my favorite. I don't think it's been matched for me. The script is incredible. The setting is everything. Andre Linoge is beyond. I'm just obsessed. And again, it's that it's that inescapable conveyor belt towards doom that you think is going to be averted. And it just keeps going. I'm like, oh my God, this, you know, like the worst can happen. It's, yeah, incredible. Yes. And Midnight Mass just echoed it. It mm. just echoed it. I'll, I'll be there with you on Little Talk. All right, we are making our way just a few more. I know that you don't, well, it seems like you probably don't talk to a lot of non-horror enthusiasts, but you've mentioned that your lady isn't a huge horror fan. And so I'm sure there are people in your life who aren't keen on reading frightening things. And unfortunately, mm. King is pigeonholed into the horror genre, whether we like it or not. So what do you recommend to people who want to read King but are like, I don't want to read horror or anything scary? So I actually wrote a full article on this for The Guardian called Where to Begin with Stephen King, which I, I liked it. <laughs> a lot of people argued, but it's my opinion. I think so. Basically, there's two, two kind of ways to answer your question. If someone is new to King and wants to read what they think King is, like the horror writer, I would always say start with Salem's Lot. Because I think, although it's not his best book, I think nothing else he's ever written is closer to what we all think Stephen King is. Because it's, you know, small town setting, massive multicast character list, a kind of tropey villain, you know, a vampire that he's riffing on. And that kind of rugged American realism juxtaposed with this disruptive supernatural force. 
I think, even though people may not articulate it that that way, that's what most people think King does. Right. And I think Salem's Lot is the quintessence of that. But if you want to come to King and you don't necessarily want to read horror, I'd say you've got two places to start depending on your appetite for pages. Because if you want a bite-sized intro, I would say go with Different Seasons, which is the the collection of novellas, which, God, my memory now, it's Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. It's The Body, which is Stand By Me, the film. And then Apt Pupil. Is it Apt Pupil? Am I getting this right? You are. Apt Pupil, which is a horror novel, but it's not a horror novel in the way that we think of as horror. It's, it's a dark thriller. You know, it's about a boy who befriends an SS guard who has escaped sort of capture. Awful thing happens to a cat in that book, which I will just warn people about. Oh, it's horrific. Yeah. Um, and it's got the breathing method. So it, it flirts with the dark, definitely, but it's never it's never horror for its own sake. It's no one would earmark that as horror. And the other one is eleven twenty two sixty three, which I think is the greatest book of his of, of the last twenty years that he's written. You know, I think it's his it's his post millennial magnum opus, and it's essentially a love story. And any horror in that is the horror of loss, and it's the horror of nostalgia. And of helplessness, I suppose, but it's much more about love than it is about anything. And it will warm and break your heart, but you will not come away from it frightened. My wife read it and loved it. Oh, good. Yeah. I can't sing high enough praises for 112263. I'm so glad it exists. Yeah. Tremendous list. I did now want to ask about Stephen King females. This is something hmm. that. If I do pursue any sort of academic papers down the road, it'll be on this topic. Okay. I just love Stephen King females, and I love what he does with dark goddess archetypes. I could really, really go a long time on exploring these ladies. But I wanted to ask what your favorite Stephen King female is. Of course, it never has to be just one. You could do a top three or a top five. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not very good at specificity, am I? So for a start, I'm glad you say that you like what he does because he gets so criticised. When I used to be in academia, one of the main reasons that a lot of my scholarly peers didn't like King it was either they thought he was a hack, which is nonsense, or they thought he was a misogynist, which I think is absolute nonsense because he started his career with a book about female rage and female puberty, and he does it really, really well. And then you look at the other characters he's written, like, where, where is this misogyny? Where is this? All right, he might have a tin ear sometimes. I'm not saying he gets it all right, but Christ, I wouldn't either, you know? But there's certainly no attempt to belittle women or to make them anything other than often quite more quietly heroic than, than the men. You know, his men are far more weak, I would say, than the women. And I think that comes from his mother, because it clearly, you know, he, he was brought up by a single mother who worked her arse off. And clearly, as he has understanding of the sacrifice of motherhood. So I'm glad that you think he writes women. I won't say well, because that's character to character, but I think he writes women with good intent. Let's put it that way. My favourite, though, it's a toss-up between three, but these three could be in any order. And it's potentially rolls the hat because... But I think so much of that is married with Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, okay. So that's a struggle. Um, She's boxy. The two that I find it really difficult to div to choose between are Bevy from It yeah. and Dolores Claiborne. 
And I think, Christ, like Dolores Claiborne is just, if I could go for a drink with any character from a King book, it would be either, yeah, Dolores Claiborne. I think she's a masterpiece of a character. Like the fact that he gets her voice and that book is written with uninterrupted prose and this, this I'm actually trying to write a novella right now, which is basically mimicking King's attempt. I'm, it's a homage, but I'm ripping it off. And like the relationship she has with her employer, Vera Donovan, like one of the great antagonistic friendships of literature. Like it's such a complex relationship she has with that woman. And like even Vera's, you know, that that quote she has, what is it? Oh, what she say, you know, sometimes you have to be a high riding bitch to survive. You know, sometimes you have to be a, a being a bitch is all a woman has yep. and stuff. And and like what she does to protect her daughter, I think Dolores is a phenomenal character. But then Bevy, we haven't talked about Andy Machete's adaptation of It, and I am angry. Let's do that because I just reread It, and Bevy is still echoing for me. So let's let's go there. Mm. So what do you think of Bevy's character? So I have a very complicated... I I love her, and at the same time, I, I feel she's not fleshed out enough for me. I don't right. care for the fact that she is sexualized in the narrative so much. Like, it's always about her body and her prepubescent mm. looks. I wish that was toned down a little bit. But I... It's very hard. For me. She is so complex for me because I, I wish she would be left alone. I just want her to be left alone. And at the same time, I'm in awe mm. of the person she blooms into and her strength and what she endures, the kind of friend she is. But when I was analyzing Bevy, I think, and speaking with others about her, she is loved because people want to defend her. And I think that's the gut reaction mm. that I feel. I love her because I want to fight for her and I want to protect her because I don't know if she's able to do that herself. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's different. But no, because the very it's it is the inverse of my take on Bevy. So basically, I'm not going to reopen the wounds of like the the whole underage sex scene in it because. I talked about it at length on my It Deep Dive with Ali and Nat, and they said smarter things than I could ever possibly have said. Ali pointed out, for example, that it is a book about puberty, you know, but only Bevy's puberty is ever really examined. You know, the boys never have wet dreams and they never get, you know, like inappropriate erections, but Bevy's puberty is laid bare. Yeah. But then she also made the point that this is a book written from a boy's, it's a book about boyhood in which Bevy is always a kind of you know like you said the goddess figure it's you know it's the it's the madonna whore thing isn't it all the yeah. way through that's how that's how her father sees her certainly is this madonna whore child who is sliding in his eyes from one end to the other of that spectrum and i think enough things have been said about that sex in enough hysterical things that i think are not warranted basically i'm going to dig a, a hole here listen to my episode with ali and nat and you'll get that we have a moderate take on this but an interesting one but the thing about her being a damsel in distress bothers me because that's why I despise the second movie. In uh, not in the second one, it happens in the first one. The Andy Machete ad adaptations. I think the first one is great until the end, and the second one is an abomination of a thing. It takes this character of Bevy, who is so incredibly represented by that actress, something Lilith. I can't remember her name now, but she is just a phenomenon in that film. 
And Bevy is the one who can shoot. Bevy's the one who they trust with the silver dollar. Yeah. Bevy's the one at the end of the day who is fighting off genuine sexual assault from all quarters. And I think one of the things that gets missed in King's writing of Bevy is that, yes, it's awful that she is constantly sexualized. And I think there are moments now and again where the objectification slides from the character's point of view to the writer's point of view. I think, but they're very few and far between, you know. But I think what he's actually quite accurately depicting that at that time, a young girl would be navigating the world in that way. She would be constantly objectified. And so to, I think to make her otherwise would be a bit of a cheat, really, you know. But again, there's a degree of crassness we can talk about. Blah, 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 blah. She, to me, is not a victim. She is a hero. And that film makes her a damsel in distress. She's literally dangling from Pennywise's web like a fucking toy prize yeah. to be won at a fun fair. And it offends me that they did that to like this layered problematic character they just made her a prize to win yeah yeah that's my sorry i got i get quite ranty about on that topic i get it she pulls it out of imagine watching that film as a little girl imagine watching that film as a little girl and you're like oh this baby's incredible oh no there she is the boys are being brave and they're saving her like come on guys and i'm not being funny that's not in the book so that's a choice you've made That is a choice you've made in the 21st century to take the one female character in a story that was written 30 years ago in which she was a hero when other books at that time would would have reduced her to nothing. King didn't. And then in the 21st century, you just had to retell that story and reduce her to a prize to be won by the bravest boy. Yeah. It pisses me off. It really does. It's so complex. Like when I think about Bevy, I really get analysis paralysis. (laughs) Like you said, I I don't demonize the way she's written. I don't hate it. I get it. I understand. And so I give a lot of credit for that. I try and balance it out. But at the same time, I'm like, I just, I, I feel I can't, it's hard for me to not come at it with the 2023 female perspective. The YA heroines that we have are vastly different. They're strong, they fight, and they're absolutely antithesis of what Bev is kind of described to be. And so it's just, it's really hard for me. I think I'm pulled in too many directions with Bev, but I agree. I wasn't crazy about the film adaptation. I think they got a lot wrong. I was more pissed about Mike. I think Mike really broke my heart the second read through, and I was pissed how the film showed Mike. Because Mike, for me, is very regal and strong and wise at the return yeah. of everybody. And in the film, at least in the second one, he's dishonest and manic and unsure and conniving. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I was more pissed mm. about Mike. But Beverly, to come back to it, I I love your perspective and it's valid. She's so complex for me in that book. Yeah. Because like you said... There is so much to celebrate about her heroism, but at the same time, King doesn't give her as much spotlight. Like, for example, when Eddie dies, she's just standing there. She didn't really get that moment to shine. Yeah, that's very true, actually. Yeah. We kind of get those kind of moments. The ending when she's with Ben. I love that. But at the same time, why did she sleep with Bill and not Ben? Or rather, why can't she ride into the sunset by herself? Why does she have to be on the arm of another man? 
And mm-hmm. so I reconcile that based on what King wanted for her. That was his idea of a happy ending for Bev. But she just got out of an incredibly abusive relationship. I mean, this lady doesn't know who she is. Mm-hmm. I would have wanted to see some real agency if she would have rode Silver right out of town by her lonesome and been brave and solo. So I'm stuck on Bev. I'm stuck. I could go a dozen different directions. And so I really, I think everybody who loves her has amazing points to make. It's a difficult one to navigate as a, as a guy, to be honest. Right. Because you are always, at the end of the day, coming up against the fact that there is a scene in which she has sex with six boys, you know, to save them. Like, and you can prevaricate and, and contextualize as much as you want. That is an uncomfortable scene to end up at, you know, whatever you want to say. We talked in my show about why I think that scene is not as perverse as the pop culture reaction to it has become in the last few years. I mean, it, King himself said it wasn't even mentioned, you know, when he wrote it. But obviously, in different climates, that is a more questionable scene. But I could argue the scene, yeah, I, I think the scene earns its place in the book. And I think with 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 her, her, her depiction as a character, I think there is a part of it where you've kind of just got to go, you know what, it was written by a guy who was, when was it, 86? He would have been, he would have been 39. Yeah, so he'd have been like mid-30s when he started writing it. And I'm thinking about myself, I'm, I'm 40 now, I'm thinking about myself when I was 35, even in these enlightened days. <laughs> I'm sort of thinking like, you know, this is a guy who is trying to write a book about the essence of childhood and it's so dredged from his own experiences it's so like lifted every reference you know it's the, the ben in the library and stuff it's so taken from his own life that i'm like i actually think with that context he did a pretty good job at writing a a girl character who had more agency than I think a lot of his peers would have given her at that time. So I think there is a degree where you've got to go for who he was when he wrote it and what he was trying to achieve as an overarching project. I think I give him a pass. But there are definitely problems. But the problems are kind of one of the reasons I think she's one of the greatest characters because, you know, what other character in King's kind of, you know, dramatic persona do we spend this much time talking about? You're right. You know, so I think... I, I, for me, yeah, it's her or Dolores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I understand why she is so revered and I put her up there mm. myself only because it is such a complex navigation of this lady. I agree with you. He was who he was when he wrote it and that's how he wanted her to be. I accept that. I do. But I have to put myself in place like you are coming at this from a very modern a very feminist perspective, you have to balance that out with what's going on in the narrative. Mm. What do you think of Rosie in um, Rose Matter? Oh, beautiful question. I love her. I love her so much. Because to me, that I think he's writing. I think that's a second pass at Bevy. I think he's saying, okay, what would Bevy have done if she left her husband and didn't go to Derry? Oh, my God. If she went, if she went to do her own thing. You know, if she went and started her own life, what would Bevy's life have been? I am absolutely slayed by the brilliance. I never made that connection before, but it works. It absolutely works. I adore Rose. I do love Bevy. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I do love her. I just get lost in the weeds. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful comparison. I I don't know how I missed that. 
He's got a lot of books, to be fair. It's true, right? I love Rose Matter. I mean, that one's bumpy. And Norman mm. Daniels is nuts, but I find that's really underrated. I like talking about Rose mm. Matter a lot. I love yeah. the Greek mythology wild ride we go on with that. Yeah. I read that. I said I read that years later. I tried it when I was a kid and I was just, you know, at, at 13, I was not ready for a kind of feminist fairy tale. I just like, this is going over my head. And then I read it like for the first time as part of that big Stephen King reread. I was just like, this book is so good. Like it's just so tight and and just it's just impressive storytelling. I really yeah, it's brilliant. Love it. Yay, I'm so glad. I think Rose needs more eyes on it. I'm happy you enjoy it. If you could get I don't know if you already possess one of these treasures. If you do, awesome. But if you could get one novel signed by King, just one, which one would that be for you? My heart says it because it's my favorite book. But actually, because I'm a kind of contrarian from a Buick 8. Yes! Because I just love it so much. It's so good. And it's such an underrated book. Yes. It's such an underrated book. And it, there's, there's a, I, I like the idea of the weirdness of getting him to sign that one. Because I bet it's barely ever been signed, you know, because it's just so neglected. But to be honest, I'm not really interested in signed books. Like, my books, I read them in the bath. I kick the shit out of them. I don't care. <laughs> Like the the object, I am just not a kind of book fetishist. I'm not interested. It's the story that matters. And if I, you know, I don't care. I just don't care. That's beautiful. That's how we all should be. <laughs> we really should. We actually have three more questions. So, Neil, as one animal lover to another, who's your favorite Stephen King pet? Who's the animal or animals? that really move you and you can have as many as you want there's only one there's only one. well they all move me but there's one that so this is what i'm, I'm going to tread very carefully here with with spoilers for you it's oi oi the billy bumbler sweet baby i i i don't i don't think you're ready i know for, oh my hypothesis is that i i'm prepared i'm prepared to just break <laughs> i i lit when I try and write about Oi, this is not like performative nonsense. This is the truth. I was making notes for this interview and I started writing down a few things about Oi and I got choked up. <gasps> like, and it's big. My, my dog looks like Oi. Oh. I mean, I, you know, when this goes live, I will put, there's a, there's a picture I have of my dog, Ted, that I will put on Twitter when this goes live. Yeah. And I will say, look, I keep saying, Mike Flanagan, please cast my dog as Oi. Right. <laughs> and like he, he breaks that, that, that poor, that character breaks my heart. And it, there's, there is a bit late on in the book, in the final book, tread carefully, when, when whoever gets there comes to the tower. I'm picking my words very carefully. Okay. They come to the tower and they start they start singing the names of the people who have been instrumental in getting there. And Roland is singing, I come in the name of uh, blah, 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 blah. I come in the name of Jake Chambers of New York. I come in the name of Eddie Dean of New York. I come in the name of Susanna Dean of New York. And he finishes off by going, and I come in the name of myself. I come in the name of Roland Deshane. I come in the name of myself and you will open to me. And it's like a fist pump moment. He's like, he's demanding the door open. So it's amazing. But he also says, 
And everyone else just gets, I come in the name of Jake of New York. I get choked up, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And he says, he says, but he includes, and I come in the name of Oi the Brave of Midworld. And oh my. Now I'm crying. Like, I can't, I often can't say those words. My voice breaks on the brave. Like, it, it, it. It ruined. people back can laugh at me all they want. I don't care. No. I, I wish everyone could feel the way I feel about yeah. this little character or about any character, because this is what books are about. Like there's a there's a there's a there's a telepathy between the page and my heart. It's just honestly. And Flanagan gets it. Because when I asked Flanagan about Oi, he, he even used the phrase he said, you know, Oi, whose whose body was far smaller than the heart it held. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah, and he just in fact, you know what? You ask me what book I want. You know, I want a prequel about Oi. I want to know what he saw and did before he joined the quartet. Why was he alone and lonely? And how did he get to be so fucking brave? Because I love that little bumbler more than it should be possible to love anything that's conjured from words and thoughts. I love him (laughs) so much. Oh, my God. That... I'm having to hold my tears back. Thank you for sharing that, Neil. I'm broken over here i agree ruins me he's so special i remember in wastelands when we first meet him mm, yeah there's this little precious angel baby there's a bird child who's wonderful okay and like the rest he gets his name shouted out oh, oh god i'm dead neil I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna be a pile of tears but i'm excited very moved that it's such a special character for you. Onward, onward. Tell me about your favorite Stephen King team or group or couple, friendship, bromance, whatever you like. This is a simple one. It comes straight to mind because obviously we all love the quartet, don't we? They are great. But for me, the greatest and, and possibly most heartbreaking friendship is Jackie and Wolf from The Talisman. Okay. Have you, have you read The Talisman? I haven't, unfortunately. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. So in this world, Jack Sawyer, this this boy whose mother is dying, he goes into another world to... And it, it's kind of linked to the Dark Tower, you find out later on. It's King kind of retcons it, so it's part of the Dark Tower. And he goes into this other world, and he meets um, many people. And he's on a quest. It's like a traditional quest narrative. And it's kind of... He's called Jack Sawyer, so it's kind of... It's very much riffing on Tom Sawyer and Hook Finn, intentionally so. And he meets this character called Wolf, who basically, in some ways, performs the function of Jim. In the, he's kind of an innocent, you know. And Wolf is a a sort of big, burly, slightly dopey shepherd, who is also a werewolf. And he, there's, there's this line, this re, kind of refrain, where he says, "You're the herd, Jackie." He's always like, I've got to protect the herd. I must protect the herd. And then like one really heroic moment, he's like, you're the herd, Jackie. Oh, dear. And I have never forgiven King for what he did to me with that book. <laughs> um, because there's just he makes Wolf suffer in the most awful ways. Mm. And and it's like, and it's almost like Wolf is a pet, as awful as that sounds. And it's potentially, you know, when you're looking at the Hook Finn analogy, slightly problematic, you know, if you're going to take that too far. But like Wolf is kind of half friend, half companion, half pet, because he's not 
He's not equipped for our... Because they keep coming back and forwards across worlds. He's not equipped for our world. He hasn't got the frame of reference. So Jackie has to kind of look after him. And, and Wolf's a liability. But they, they're they just brilliant together. And if the Duffer brothers, who are making the talisman, which I'm not happy about, if they screw that up, I'll be writing strongly worded letters about <laughs> um, about that. Yeah, that's my favourite friendship in King's Fiction, Jackie and the Wolf. Oh, beautiful. I'm looking forward to it. I have been exploring Fantasy King this year. I read mm-hmm. Eyes of the Dragon and Fairy Tale, and so everybody's been reaching out, preaching talisman. So I think that's going to have to happen next year because I really enjoy Fantasy King. What do you think of Fairy Tale? Because you just reminded me that Radar exists, and I that was a whole thing. Oh my God, I loved Radar. I enjoyed Fairy Tale. I mm. did. My overall conclusion is that I think it needs more time in the stew pot for me. Like, I think it needs to age a little bit. Okay. I think with King readers, we didn't really know what to think about that one. I've largely heard a lot of people kind of displeased with it. And I I get it because it's so out there. But I Mm. love the hero's journey. I love the world building, which we don't see a lot of in King's catalog. I don't think he does a lot of world building to the extent that I would like. I think he always leaves a lot in the shadows. And here he just made Mm -hmm. this amazing little mythical place. And I was enthralled by what he was doing. So I think I probably enjoy the process more than the actual output. But I found it charming. Mm -hmm. I found it enjoyable. And I liked what he was doing. I was kind of intrigued by it. I wouldn't say I loved it, but I'm kind of eager to see it age. I wonder what we might say about it in 10 years time. I, I loved it, but I loved the stuff in Illinois so much more than the stuff in Empis. I just loved the, like, you know, as I, I mean, I asked King this question about whether he is actually at heart a realist rather than a horror writer. I, I think he just, I think he just uses horror as a, as a kind of device, as a plot device to really talk about the realist things he wants to talk about. Yeah. And in that book, just this gentle story about a guy, a little a kid taking care of his dad and taking care of his neighbor's dog when the old man dies and, I loved it. And then the MP stuff was great, but it felt like it needed its own book. It, it, I would have liked it to have been written perhaps as a duology where he, there was more time to spend really fleshing out Empis and why we should care about this gladiatorial combat. It all felt a little bit too rushed in the second half. But I certainly think it was, I mean, I really enjoyed it. And these people who don't like it, it's kind of like, oh, come on. What do you want? It's just a great, sorry, great characters. Like, don't be too grumpy, you know? I definitely wouldn't give it the vitriol that many gave it. I thought that was very out of line, but Mm. I agree with you completely. I felt the last third, the third act, I struggled. It's a little disjointed for me, but overall, Charlie and Radar, that was Mm. so precious. I got on board with that right away. We've got one more constant reader interview question, and then we've just got like a personal Kim C question, and then we're on our way out. Last question. Top three or top five King titles and what put them there for you? Why did they get that spot? Okay, I'm going to be brief and not long-winded. First of all, here are the five books that I think are the best Stephen King books. In no particular order. The Shining, Misery, Different Seasons, The Stand and It. I think they're the best ones. They are not my favourite ones. Copy. That's the best. Shining, The Stand, Misery, Different Seasons and It. My favourite books, I would say, 
And this could change on a daily basis. I, I, I actually ranked all 75 for Esquire and it nearly killed me trying <laughs> to decide how that sat alongside that. And, and this is a different list than what I put in that magazine. So it, it shows often it changes. Top five for me. At five from a Buick 8. Nice. At four... Ooh, 11, 22, 63. At th- now, at three and two, <laughs> I have, I can't divide them. Three and two, you decide, people, wh- wh- where you want these to go. It's the stand and wizard and glass. Beautiful. And n- number one is it. Rightly so. Perfect. So from this, we take that I like his longer books because I like when he has room to breathe because I like the tangents. I like when he just stops caring about editorial restraint or I like when he just doesn't care about structure anymore. You know, he's yeah. just like, right, this is happening. We're going to agree with this. Um, <laughs> and But what all of those books have got in common with the take Wizard and Glass out of it for a second, what Buick A, 11.22.63, The Stand and It have got in common is that they are all massive stories about characters set against like an insane backdrop, but it's the drama in the foreground that matters. It's their reactions to the insanity that matters, not the insanity. So, yeah, sure, we care about who the Dark Man is. We're interested in why, you know, they've gone back in time to save Kennedy and what the Yellow Car Man is. And it's, oh, what is the car in a Buick? We care, but that's not the stuff that we take away from the book with us. We take away all the little human moments. And I think he's never been better at creating those human moments. Like when I think of The Stand, the first scene that comes to my mind is the scene with Nick Andros when he's arrested, he gets beaten up and then then Captain Tripps hits and he goes and he's looking after the sheriff and the sheriff's wife because they're sick. It's like a little nested story about this guy, like look after these two sick people in the middle of this catastrophe. And, you know, and when I think about from a Buick 8, I think about them sitting around on the, on the bench outside the station, just telling stories, you know, and stuff like that. And and 11, 6, 22, 6, 3, I think about the, the dance that they throw for Sadie. You know, I don't think about the weirdness. I think about those human moments. And I don't think he's ever been better at doing them than in, in those four books. And then you've got Wizard and Glass, which is just probably his greatest ever feat of plotting and storytelling. That's my answer. <laughs> Oh, so great. That's a beautiful list. It's a beautiful list. Oh, my heart. I'm so moved. I feel very seen. I feel very validated. Before we head out of here on this stellar, beyond stellar constant reader interview, you got to chat with Mr. King this year, Neil. And Mm. it is, Mm. I'm not just saying that it is one of, if not the best King interview I've ever heard. I just feel you hit it on the head. You absolutely cleared through all the horror stuff and said, actually, Mr. King, you're an American realist. You're an American realist who uses horror to kind of amplify what you're trying to say. And I've never been so thrilled for a person to just say that to him and validate what I feel every day of my life, which is he's so much more, so much bigger, so much more. And he said a really cool thing to me because I said, like, I remember saying, like, I laid out this thesis, like, with the arrogance that only, you know, a, a white male podcaster can have. And then he, I said to him, does that hold water, that theory? And he said, it doesn't even leak. And I was like, yes, thank you, Stephen. It was perfect. So brilliant, beyond brilliant. But I guess my personal question is, 
you did such a brilliant job of staying composed and just great, great segues. And I don't know, you just rocked it. And so my question is, how did you not self-combust? <laughs> <laughs> so it was a weird one. It really was a weird one. So what happened is I did the It podcast with Nat and Ali, and then he retweeted it. I was in London seeing Bruce Springsteen. I was at Springsteen concert. It was like the best day of my life. And he retweeted <laughs> it saying, you know, these guys, it's quite funny. The, these guys have talked about my book. You might like it. He wrote something like, quite smart, occasionally amusing, <laughs> which is like the most damning with faint praise. And the other the other day, I, I had my 40th birthday. And when I turned up, all my mates had a T-shirt made with quite smart, occasionally amusing on the T-shirt. <laughs> so when I saw that, I was like hyperventilating. Like, oh, my God, because Stephen King is aware of me, you know. And then I kind of thought, like, I need to know how to use this right. because it, I don't want to because I'm I'm a nobody. Right. I've got one shot. So I thought, if not now, when? So I happen to have a random contact for a random person who knows his agent. And I basically just sent this email, didn't even know if it was the right person, if it would get there, didn't know anything. Sent it saying, hi, if not now, when? Felt like I should reach out now because Stephen mentioned the podcast and I, you know, if not fine, but would love to speak to him. I sent that out about 11 o'clock at night. Two hours later, I got an email from Stephen King oh my God. saying, saying, let's do it. You guys rock. Oh my God. And I was like, <laughs> right. So then I went into a complete tailspin and I thought, right, don't email him back. Look cool. And then we had like a bit of a chat about stuff. And then we did like an impromptu practice thing to make sure that all the software worked and i was not cool <laughs> i was not cool at all i was kind of like hello mr king uh thank you for doing this uh it really means a lot to me and you could tell he was just kind of like right we know the software works get out of my life i've got things to do and i was trying to chat and he was like right i've got to go i've got to go see you later so but weirdly that helped because when i spoke to him next that wasn't the first time we spoke and i was able to do it much more as like, this is an interview. And whilst I was doing it, I the only way I've been able to describe this is, I knew, obviously, this was Stephen King, but it didn't feel like the man who wrote The Shining. It felt like a cool dude I was talking to, but it didn't feel like that. And then when we finished, he said some very nice things and stuff, and it was really cool. And then we went our separate ways. And then I did the edit and... That was just kind of like process. So I didn't think of him as like, that's King. I was like, that's a voice I need to edit. You know, it was only when I listened to it back when it went live, that I was like, oh my God, that's Stephen King. And then again, I was not cool, you know, at all. I just sort of sat there with a bruise, sort of shaking, you know. Um, <laughs> but I suppose the reason I was able to be okay was I know all this stuff. Like he's not going to hoodwink me. When I spoke to Margaret Atwood, I've only read a few of her books. I was like, if she asks, if, she, if I ask a stupid question, you know, she's formidable. If I show I don't haven't read that book, is she going to be offended? With King, I've read everything. Like, what's he's not going to shock me with something, you know? So I felt prepared. It was just about getting over my own sort of, you know, the most the, the most epic imposter syndrome imaginable. But he, he was just so lovely. He was such a nice man. He put me at ease. Well, the interview sings. It just sings, Neil. It's just beautiful. And you did so well. It's so strong. It moved me. I get very misty-eyed about it. It's a thrill to to have somebody, a podcaster, do such a, an amazing job, ask these amazing questions that were spot on, dead on. So 
well done. Well done. I'm just so Thank thrilled. You. And what an amazing story. I'm one degree away. I'm happy. The rest <laughs> of my life, one degree away from King. Well, without sounding really, really smug, he followed me on Twitter last night. So when I retweet this, say we've had this conversation, you might see it. You never know. You never know. Never know. But I think I'm so glad that your interview unlocked what a lovely man he is. And I know a lot of interviews do that, but something about yours is just, it's not soaked in horror stuff. It's just dances around it and it gets to some really beautiful examinations that you're a really great writer of things that aren't just mm. horror king. Like you're massively talented person who's really kind and really cool. I think he cares about writing so much yeah. that he really responds well to people who care about writing because I've heard other podcasts interview him and they often ask more questions about the films right. than the books. And I find that an odd thing to do because, you know, you've got King here for an hour. Like, this is the storyteller of our century. Why are you asking about what his thoughts are on someone else's adaptation of his work? Like, ask about the work you know and i think he picked up on that i think he got that i really loved what he does not the industry around him if that makes sense and and he's just so generous because like i say i am a nobody i have a little podcast with a few thousand listeners right i am a, a moat in god's eye when it comes to king but he he knows what he's doing and he rewards you with these tidbits like he basically crowbarred a reveal about his next two books into that conversation. And he's not an idiot. He knows the power of that. He knows that he is giving me something there that is like a currency. And it's like he anoints people that he thinks have earned it. And he gives you this thing that is like a, a key to a door, you know, and he doesn't have to do that. You know, he's got nothing to gain. What can I possibly offer King? And he was just so generous. And it was like, it was so lovely to meet your actual hero. Like, the only hero I have, there is no one else. There is him, Bruce Springsteen, kind of, but there is <laughs> King. And to meet him and to just be so gratified and so rewarded with someone being better than you think they are. I, I loved it. It's the highlight of my year. I, the highlight of my life, honestly. Like if you could have told me, what, 10 years ago and I was killing myself in my thesis and or told me when I was 14 and reading it, if you'd have told me, that one day I'd sit down and have a conversation with him and that we'd email now and again. It would just be, I would laugh in your face. Oh, I, I'm having to like swallow my tears back just listening to that because you are all of us, but you did it so beautifully. And so there's just an immense amount of gratitude for somebody who did it right, Neil. And that's what I think it is. You, you focused on the best parts of King, which is his writing. And, and I'm just immensely grateful. Somebody did it right. And I'm just so thrilled it was you. And I'm thrilled that you have this experience. Thank you for sharing it with everybody listening. Well, we need to reverse this round because I need to know what you think about all of these books. So at some point you have to come on my show so I can grill you because I, I need to know what your favorite King pet is and your favorite King female and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. Anytime, anytime. I did study gothic novels, so I could talk classics if you want. Okay. I'm pretty well read from my MFA. My Britlets, not great, but we could talk about paint drying or grass growing, and it would be a thrill, Neil. So <laughs> we could absolutely talk about anything you wanted. Well, I'm actually about 20 miles from 
Howarth, which is where the Brontes grew up. So I'm about 20 miles from Wuthering Heights. That's my gothic link. Oh my goodness. Is that the Moors? Yep, the Moors are just out of that window and they go all the way to to, to Howarth and Wuthering Heights. Oh my God. Yeah, let's nerd out. Let's talk Rochester. Let's talk Heathcliff. I'll chat with you about anything. But yeah, I would love to do a reverse constant reader. That's never happened before. But you've provided some absolutely stellar answers that are incredibly unique. A lot of these I have never heard before, Neil. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for letting me wax lyrical about my favorite writer. It was a joy. It was a pleasure. I, I'm losing composure now, so we got to cut me off. So <laughs> at this point in the show, can you let everybody out there know what's Talking Scared doing the rest of the year? Who's on the docket coming up? What do you have planned? Oh, that's a good question. Let me have a look at my schedule. So I am, um, which is always open. <laughs> so by the time this goes out, I will have just put live an episode with Tanana Reeve Do who is, I think, the foremost practitioner of, of Black contemporary horror. And she's written a novel called The Reformatory, which is set in the 50s in Florida in this horrendous, haunted, juvenile detention facility. It's actually based on a real tragedy from her own family history. But if you like King, you will love this book. It has that, I even say that in the outro, it has that same texture of something like Shawshank and The Body, even when it's about horrible things, it's got this casual, anecdotal writing style that is just lovely. And it's a great conversation. The week before that, I spoke to Nat Cassidy, who is an even bigger King fan than me. <gasps> Uber King nerd. And he just wrote a book called Nestlings, which is his take on Salem's Lot. And it's very, very good. But going forwards, I've got a small press writer called Tyler Jones, who's coming on the show with quite a different episode because he's written a book called Midas, which is actually only limited release. So not everyone can get their hands on it. But it's, I want to talk about it because it's a book that is rooted in, this sounds really dark, but it's a joyous conversation, but it's rooted in the fact that his son is quite profoundly disabled and does not have a very, very, long life expectancy and he wrote a book to come to terms with that and it's a really beautiful conversation it's hard to hear in parts but it's about life not death you know and then going forwards i've got like just a host of great authors luke dumas who's written haunted museum ghost dinosaur novel called the paleontologist c.s humble who's written a trilogy of weird westerns that have been sort of compared to Comp McCarthy and Larry McMurtry. Gemma Amore, who is a friend of mine, British author, who's got a new Cornish Gothic novel coming out called The Folly. Then I do a whole thing. Oh, then I've got Michelle Paver, who wrote the classic Dark Matter, the Arctic horror novel. And then I do, I do a thing called The State of the Horror Nation, where I do a recap over the best books we've all loved this year with some guests. Uh, the Ghost Story Deep Dive. And into next year, I mean... I've got Chuck Palahniuk coming on the show, even Graham Jones coming back on the show, Gwendolyn Keist. Um, I'll probably have Paul Tremblay back on the show and he has a new book out. Uh, Dean Koontz is coming on in the summer. <gasps> oh. Talk about his career. So yeah, a lot, of, a lot of things to cover going forwards, but I like to speculate with lesser known names too. You'll be busy. Mm. I'm taking a short break in the new year because I need one. I've done an episode every week since September 2020. So oh I need some time off, but I'll be back and stronger than ever. Neil, I bow down. I, <laughs> oh man, I'm working on increasing my pace a little bit. 
during COVID, I was doing a book a week because I had the yeah. time to do it, yeah. but I've slowed down a skosh. Yeah, well, King books are pretty big as well. It's quite hard to do under the dome in a week, right? When you've oh, got yeah. other things in your life. When you can leave your house, it's quite difficult to read the stand in a week. But yeah, no, good luck with it. Thank you once more for... Oh, my heart is just so moved. This was just such a great, great experience. Thank you for coming on here and sharing your love of King and really bringing a lot of amazing insight. I just feel so... I feel like I just attended an awesome lecture. I really am walking away from like a seminar, very changed. <laughs> so thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute delight. Take care. Cheers. much did you love that everyone hopefully your heart is just as melted as mine wow don't you just want to clap i most certainly do after i wipe the tears off my cheeks thank you so very much to neil for being so generous with his time and really taking these interview questions out of the cosmos his king wisdom and passion are completely electric and they inspire me to the 10th power I hope that Neil and I can get together in future for more Dark Tower-related content because I'm ready, guys. I'm ready to get back to Roland and the Quartet, and for what's coming, I know I'm going to need some intellectual and emotional support, but in all honesty, I embrace it. I'm looking forward to it, whatever happens. At the heart of it, I know Ka is a wheel, and that's got to count for something. Please visit the links in the show notes for all things Talking Scared. And please make sure you spend some time with Neil's articles because they really are the cat's pajamas. I love his perspective. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to Talking Scared. I think Neil's literary opinion may be the only one we need going forward. Also, be sure to prioritize, if you haven't already, the Mike Flanagan interview, which makes me swoon. And of course, Mr. Stephen King's interview, which is the best I've ever heard. All right, loves. Now that we're coming back down to earth, I do have a bit of bad news. Unfortunately, my Salem's Lot episode is going to be postponed until most likely next year. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm really gutted, but I was at the end of my read-through, and with my work schedule and everything on my plate, it was not coming together the way I wanted. I really ran out of time and I didn't want to rush it and give a less than stellar overview of Salem's Lot. No way, Jose, that was not an option. So I made a choice and the choice was to put it on the back burner until I have more time to plug in with not only Salem's Lot, but the short stories Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road, because as you all know, they're all connected and we need to explore them all together, in my humble opinion. And I was just not in a spot to make it happen. But next year, guys, next year, we'll get back to Barlow and Stryker and it's going to be awesome. Okay, what you all can look forward to is my next episode, which will be 1974's Carrie. I'm nearly finished with it. It is my very first time reading it ever, ever, ever. And I've got a lot of feelings, my guys. My goodness. There is a lot of power, darkness, and intensity in this little story. 
but that will definitely be our next episode. So if you want to do a quick reread to sync up with me, I recommend because I promise, promise, Carrie is our next episode. I'm really excited. It's going to be heavy, but it's going to be good. And I totally feel it's meant to be. November is an amazing month to talk about Carrie. Without sounding too woo-woo quackadoo, I do on occasion subscribe to Astrological Forecasts, and November has a lot of dark energy floating around, so if you're feeling particularly rageful, it's actually normal. (laughs) We're going to have a good time talking about Miss Carrie White. That will lead us to the end of the episode, dear ones. If you are new to the show, I hope you stay a while, click around, explore, and share it with a Stephen King fan in your life. I also hope you subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you haven't already, please say hello at underratedsk at gmail. I respond to listeners often, and it's so great to hear your thoughts on the show, past episodes, learn about your reading history with King, as well as your personal recommendations. King fans are the definition of rad and so smart, so it's terrific interacting with all of you, so please say hello. It really makes me smile. You can also find the Year of Underrated Stephen King on Instagram, X, Threads, Facebook, and I think that's about it. I'm answering messages on those platforms as well, so please feel free to reach out on whatever branch you choose. Your listenership and messages help me pull the plow on this little show, so any communication is greatly appreciated. Wherever you are in the world, please take care as winter is coming. It may in fact already be there where you're at, so bundle up if it's chilly, and I'll talk to you all very soon. Bye-bye.